It would be good to keep uh, your bulletin open uh, as we look at this passage together. Uh, If this is your first time amongst us, we are continuing a series in the letter of 1 John, written by the Apostle John. Uh, Hopefully, uh, I'll give enough background as we go to keep you in the loop about where we're up to. Let's pray uh, that God will speak to us this morning through his word. Uh, Dear Lord, we do thank you that you do speak uh, through your word. We thank you uh, that as we gather here today, uh, that your spirit is amongst us, uh, teaching us of the things that we need to hear. So I pray that my words will be faithful to your word and that we will learn from you today. Amen. Uh, There's a saying, you can fool some of the people some of the time, and perhaps even most of the people most of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. It's a a comment on our capacity to put on a good front. Sometimes we do it out of a a desire for self-preservation, sometimes out of a desire for uh, self-acclamation, to make ourselves look good before others. Sometimes it's a little more nefarious, and it's about wanting to deceive other people for our own benefit and gain. But whatever the motivation is, we want to present ourselves to others as, as we would like them to see us. And I think that's one of the things that fascinates us about you know, reality TV, you know, like Survivor. You know, we put people in these extraordinarily stressful situations and then we watch them crack. And so we get, we get to see, you know, what's really going on underneath? You know, they put up this good front, but under pressure, what are they really like underneath? Or perhaps just take your average, you know, family with three young children coming to church on Sunday morning. And so our family went something like this. Yes, it's time to go hurry up. We need to go. No, I don't know where your shoes are. Yes, you do need shoes. Uh, Do you really need to go to the bathroom now? Hurry up. Can we get in the car? And then finally we get to church and we emerge out of our reasonably priced family wagon, all smiles and happiness. And the only sort of remnant of the chaos that has just ensued is one child sort of hopping along trying to put on a shoe as we walk in the building. Yeah, we are good at presenting ourselves how we would like others to see us. But it's not just about putting on a good front to others. I think sometimes we can put on a good front even to ourselves. So Jeremiah has these words, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? But if that is true then how can I know, even within myself, whether my heart is right before God? How do I know before God that things are good? And that's really what this passage is about today, that we can have confidence before God because of what God's Spirit does in us. But before we look at our passage, we do need to take a brief excursion into the wonderful and fascinating world of Greek translation, which I can feel half the room leaning slightly forward and the other half going, kill me, kill me now. (laughs) 
But let me give you the very, very brief version. So this roughly is what uh, your Bible looks like uh, in the Greek. So most of the New Testament, or all of the New Testament, was written in Greek. And as you can see, the sentence structure is a little bit different to what we're used to. It works quite well if you read it with a Yoda voice. Okay? But uh, it means that when we translate the Bible... It's not as simple as simply translating word for word because sentence structure is different and words have different meanings when they are put into different contexts. And then to make it even more difficult, you then have the challenge of putting it into a language that's actually accessible and easy to read. And there's no punctuation to boot. And so we take this and we end up with this. And so that is much more pleasant to read and much easier not to have a Yoda voice. Uh, But it does mean that as the translator writes it for us, that they do make some decisions about what it actually means as they talk to us. And so today uh, I ask for us to read from the 2011 NIV. We use a slightly older version here at church because the, the translation is a little more literal And the meaning is a little clearer for us. So let's have a look at it together and see what it actually has to say. So the opening words of this passage are a transition. So last week we were talking about how Christians are called to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And now he's moving, so the the writer John is moving to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in leading us to know God. And so the two key words in the opening of this section are knowing and truth. So verse 18, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So these verses are written in the future tense. And so John wants the Christians to be confident that one day in the future when they stand before God, that they will be right before him. And so verse 20 is most commonly understood as a word of encouragement and assurance. And so in that context, when it's read like that, people read it to be saying, you know, even though we struggle to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, because it is genuinely hard to do, and even though our conscience can accuse us sometimes, we should be confident that God knows that our heart is for him and that things are well between us. But I think when we read John as he writes through the whole letter, you know, the whole breadth of his letter he often writes with contrast so he tells you the good news and the bad news and so I think in that context this is actually the bad news so God being greater than our hearts and knowing everything is not a word of comfort or assurance it's actually a warning and what's at stake here is more than just our feelings or even our slightly less fickle conscience Our heart cuts right to the essence of who we are, to our identity as human beings before God. So Jesus puts it like this when he quotes Isaiah. He's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn. 
So what John is talking about here isn't just our conscience or how we feel towards God. It's how we stand before God. And there's nothing we can hide from God. So we can put on a good front. We can put on a good front to the people around us. We can put on a good front to ourselves. But God sees right to the core of our being. And if our heart is wrong before God, then we have a problem. So the heart's kind of like the black box of of an aeroplane. You know, it doesn't lie. It just simply lays out reality as it is. Fortunately, though, even though that's a warning, John also has a word of assurance and confidence. So verse 21, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. So if our hearts condemn us, then we should be fearful before God. But if our hearts are right before God, then we should be confident. It's tempting uh, to read this particular passage as sort of a general comment on prayer and the power of prayer. And there is no doubt as Christians, we should be prayerful people. You know, we pray to praise God and acknowledge him for who he is. We pray to beg God to intervene, either to bless us or to show mercy. And so we should. As God's people, we recognize that God is sovereign. He is completely in control and there is nothing outside his power. And so when we pray... We pray with complete confidence that God can act according to his will. But this particular passage is a little more narrow than just talking about prayer in general. It's also tempting to read this passage and feel that the apostle is saying, well, if Christians pray, then whatever they pray, God will answer it just the way they want it. No question, no qualification. And some Christians will use this sort of passage to say the only limiting factor in our prayers being answered is our weakness and lack of faith. I think the difficulty with that type of thinking is it places us in the centre. It says we can see it all, we know it all, and so when we pray, we are praying the wisest, best prayer that we could be praying. And so God should be following our lead. And so obviously that is not true. We have such a limited perspective of reality. We struggle to see what's happening in our day just from hour to hour, minute to minute, let alone thinking that we can see the impact and consequences of our prayers over an entire lifetime. So we have to come to God recognising that actually he is in control. Uh, Later in this letter, John will say, if we ask anything according to his will... He hears us. And that puts things in the right perspective, doesn't it? That it's God who is at the centre. It's God who sees it all. It's God who knows it all. And so what we are praying is that God will hear our prayers and act in the way that we most need. But it also means that we've got to accept that God's will is not always going to be the same as our expectation. So we would love it 
that every time we pray that God relieves us of the brokenness of this world or relieves us of, would relieve us of our physical pain, that he would answer that prayer in the affirmative. But we also know he doesn't always choose to do that. We know that we would love God to deal with the injustice of the world here and now. But we know he doesn't always do that in our timing. And so we have to trust God. Do we actually trust God with our prayers, not with the fervency of my prayer or how you know, you know, forceful I declare it, but that God is in control and that God will act according to his will. And whatever happens now, we can be confident that God will walk with us in it. And we can be confident of the future. So he's already guaranteed a final outcome. And if it's an issue of sin and temptation, then we know that through his son he will forgive us for that sin. And there will be a time where there will be relief and justice and restoration. But if we expect all of that here and now in my timing, then I'm going to be disappointed. I think ultimately disillusioned. But I think most significantly in this particular passage, as John talks about prayer, he's talking about us belonging to God. So we can be confident that when we pray from the heart for God to forgive us for our sin, to take us from death to life, when we pray that prayer, that God will hear it and he will answer it. And we know that we are praying it from the position of a good heart and a, good, and a godly heart when we are listening to God's commandments. So verse 23, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commands us. So it's not just an action thing, it's a belief thing. Do we believe Jesus really is the son of God? who died on the cross for our sin. Because that's the heart of being a Christian. So we can't expect to be saved and say, yeah, but I'm not really into Jesus. I'm just kind of hoping it's between me and God. Don't like that Jesus bit. And we can't say, you know, I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven, but I don't really like Christians because they're actually quite annoying. We can't say that. We can only come to God on his terms. We're saved by grace. There's nothing we can do to contribute to it. But we are saved on on God's terms. And God calls us to obey him. And we're only ever going to do that if God's spirit convicts us that it is true. So verse 24, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. The difficulty is that God's spirit isn't the only one trying to convince us of what is true. So jumping into our next chapter, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, Jesus and his disciples had incredible and dramatic experiences of dealing with evil spirits. And we can read those in the gospel. So, for example, in Mark 9, when uh, talking, uh, Jesus is talking, you deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. And equally, uh, we've got dramatic experiences of God's Holy Spirit acting. You know, for example, the day of Pentecost, when, he, when the Spirit comes, you know, like the rush of a great wind and like tongues of fire coming and resting on people. I mean, that's dramatic stuff. But more often, in our experience, in the experience of our world, what's happening spiritually is more subtle, but equally powerful. So we have the spirit of God at work and we have the spirit of the Antichrist, but only one spirit is speaking the truth. I think when it comes to talking about spiritual things, uh, there are certain levels of discomfort. So I think we're relatively comfortable talking about God generally. You know, everyone sort of interprets that through their own particular personal lens. I think at the other end of the spectrum of discomfort is talking about evil spirits. You know, the idea that that something's out there running around messing with our heads. But if we believe in God and we believe in his Holy Spirit, then we equally have to recognise Satan and that Satan acts through his spirits. And so often it works in those subtle ways of life. Because the problem with evil is it doesn't look like the Hollywood version. It would be much simpler if it was some heads spinning around you know, on, a, on, a, on a table. You go, okay, I get evil, I can see that. Uh, but evil in our world often looks so much sweeter. And it often masquerades as the truth. So in our particular situation in this letter, we've got these wolves in sheep's clothing who have been deceived... And now they have become the deceivers. And they claim to know the truth, but they've just left out all the inconvenient bits, like confessing sin or obeying God's commands or loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And everyone in this situation claims that their message is coming from the Spirit of God. So how do the Christians know the truth? How do you tell the difference? And John wants to say, in verse 2, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And so while we should respect that we are in a spiritual battle and that Satan is powerful, we also need to be confident that God is more powerful. And so actually, as Christians, we have nothing to fear. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. But that doesn't mean we can simply ignore Satan or ignore the spiritual things happening around us. Because in our culture, it is subtle and it is seductive. He takes the sinfulness of humanity and then he fertilises it and nurtures it and holds it up as something beautiful. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. 
So I think he starts by encouraging us to see that evil is actually an anomaly. It's a kink in human nature that we can iron out easily enough. Don't worry about it. Nothing to see here. Just move along. Everything is fine. And then on the other side, I think he then goes on to make our sin look that much more acceptable. And so we end up taking uh, good things that God gives us, like love, like justice, like freedom, and then we twist them around and use them to uphold our own freedom and at the same time ignore God. And the Apostle John wants to point this out and recognise it for what it is. He wants us to to look at these false teachers and say these guys really are shoveling a whole lot of manure. I could have used alliteration there, I chose not to. (laughs) But you get the point, don't you? You know, John wants to hold these people up and show them up for what they are. And John says, we are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Sounds arrogant, doesn't it, for John to say, I'm from God and therefore you should believe me. But in this situation, John is the only one who's actually been there. He's the only one who actually lived with Jesus, who heard what Jesus had to say. And so what he's telling us and what he's telling the Christians in this passage is simply what Jesus has told him. And if we're sceptical as we sit here today about his motivation or his message then we've got the opportunity to look at not only what John has to say, but also what the other early Christians have to say and what the other disciples have to say. And it's a consistent message. Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross to pay the price for our sin. And so we need to repent and believe. And so when we come to Christ as Christians, it's really a convergence of two things. It's our human rational thought as we look at the evidence before us and it's God working through his spirit to convict us of what is true. As Christians, as humans, uh, we have an incredible capacity to fool even ourselves. We can walk the walk, talk the talk and still have a heart that is far away from God. And if we just listen to our emotions and our feelings, then that can be a double-edged sword, can't it? Because our feelings are are fickle friends. You know, sometimes they accuse us when we should have confidence and other times they give us confidence when we really should feel accused. And the Apostle John wants to cut through all of the emotion and the uncertainty and the insecurity to the facts We can be confident about where we stand before God if we know what is true about God's Son. And that's only possible through God's Spirit showing it to us. That gives us a real peace in the present, doesn't it? But also gives us a clear hope in the future. Because we are all heading to a point where we inevitably need to confront the reality of our mortality and death. And as Christians, we should live you know, life confidently now, absolutely. We should love the life God has given us. But we should also live confident of our future. 
and are confident that God has plans for us, good plans for us. It's not this is the good version and the other's the dud version. God has eternity to share with his people. And that's a hope that we have and that's a confidence we have and a certainty we have because, not of our goodness, but God's grace to us through his son. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your spirit uh, and we recognise that it's only through your spirit that you convince us and convict us of what is true. And so, Lord, I pray for each of us today. I pray for those who follow you this morning that we will live with confidence. Uh, For those who, uh, who are here today who are perhaps still thinking through where they stand before you, I pray that you will open their hearts and minds to recognize that Jesus really is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sin. So we pray for these things in your Son's name. Amen.